Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we are joined by Tommy Adeyemi, who is the writer of the wildly incredible book, The Children of Blood and Bone. Well, a big part of writing this entire trilogy is like to save the little Tommy, because I know if I'd read Children of Blood and Bone when I was a kid, I wouldn't have erased myself. And so I think it's giving ourselves a mirror to look into. In the news with me, Brittany Clinton-Sam. It's our first episode in 2019. Now, the message that I want to deliver this week, or the message from my heart, is twofold. The first is about remembering that curiosity is a skill, and the way that you develop all skills is by practice. And there are a lot of people who, like, have questions about things, but they, like, are too embarrassed to ask it, or, like, don't feel like they should like maybe challenge that thing or like feel like they're not smart enough to do the whatever it is and like you just gotta go into it you know i'm in a lot of rooms where people say things and they expect that i know it and i'm like i just don't i literally don't i don't understand or i don't know and the way that curiosity flourishes is remembering that you don't lose anything by asking questions you don't lose anything by showing up and saying i actually want to learn more about this and i don't know as much so please help me. What I want to give you going into 2019 is, is the advice to live in the curious place. Live in your curiosity and remember that curiosity is a skill. And the only way skills get strong is by practice. Hey y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Samsway on Twitter. This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third, and this is Dre at D I Y on Twitter. I have been off of social media, but I have been tweeting through a third-party account, so through Buffer, in order to live tweet the last three nights of Lifetime Surviving R. Kelly, which, for those who have not seen it, was six back-to-back episodes, so six hours of coverage of the continual perpetual, consistent abuse of women and abuse in particular of young underage women that he has been engaged in pretty much his entire career. It was unyielding to watch, uh, which should put us in the mind of how unyielding it is to have been one of his victims. And there are a number of survivors who talked about their experience. There are a number of cultural critics who analyze just how much systems of protection had been set up by him, by Chicago Police Department, by the music industry itself, and just how many ways and how many people were complicit in covering up his sins uh, and his crimes continuously. So while it was difficult to watch, um, it was a very necessary watch. And I am grateful to the filmmakers and to Lifetime for putting that out there. And, And hopefully we will see not only him brought to justice, but the women who are continuously being held and abused by him find safety and resolution in their lives. I'm trying to think of no, because I've seen sort of the conversation happening on Twitter. I still have to to watch the series. 
but I think, you know, it, what is clear is that there are a lot of men in particular who have tried to either defend R. Kelly or criticize Lifetime or, or like somehow try to uh, make excuses for a situation that is so clear where accountability is so necessary and these conversations have to happen to lead to accountability. So I think, you know, again, we see how these conversations happen and, and it really causes people to show their true colors. And, and I'm hopeful that that at some point people will understand that this is not acceptable, right? And that as men, we have to stand up. We have to say that this is unacceptable and we definitely have to not make excuses for this or, or contribute to a culture that continues to allow this uh, to happen again and again and again. Uh, two things I'll say. One is that just like there were rumors of him assaulting black women before people like knew it for a fact, there are also rumors of him assaulting young black uh, boys. And one of the things that I kept hearing people say while the documentary was airing was, you know, we can separate the art from the artist, right? That like, you know, I can still love R. Kelly's music, but I don't agree with what he's doing. And it's like, that is just a veneer for you to protect people who are doing really bad things that like, remember that supporting the art is actually what allows the artist to do, like to wield the power that is actually hurting people. So when you're like, oh, I'm streaming his music and I'm going to the concert, it's like, yeah, no, that is like still that, like that, what you call supportive, the art is actually enabling him to continue to abuse people. So some of us knew he was not a good person a long time ago and stopped supporting his stuff. But now that people have like seen this documentary, I hope that more and more people, especially in the industry, will take a step back and just not be a party to to what he's doing. And I hope that like this actually leads to some sort of accountability for him so that he can stop negatively impacting people's lives like this. That like I think that what the documentary showed is so many people whose lives he has ruined and how there has been no no accountability and certainly no justice. Yeah, I haven't had the opportunity to watch it yet, but I've certainly been seeing a lot of the conversation online. And one of the things that was brought up is the abuse that R. Kelly experienced as a child himself. And people talk about the cyclical nature of violence. And I think it's really important for us to understand the way that people who are on the receiving end of violence are often those who perpetrate violence at the same time or later in their lives. And that's an important thing for us to reckon with, because if we are going to create a world in which young black women and, and black girls are protected from physical and emotional violence that that people like R. Kelly enact on them, then it also demands a reckoning and a more robust and more honest conversation about the ways in which so often the people who are doing that egregious harm to black women, to be clear, that is uh, inexcusable, uh, are often people who have been on the receiving end of some iteration of violence themselves. And I think that sometimes that's a difficult conversation to have because it can sometimes veer into seeming like one is attempting to absolve the guilty party from what they have done. But I think it's really important to to hold both of those sort of complicated things at once to help us understand the way that violence manifests itself in order to prevent that sort of violence from continuing to happen. On a lighter note, we have some live shows coming up in 2019. If you all have not been to crooked.com slash events yet to see if we're coming to your city and to buy your tickets, you should. And while you're at it, you should find some music from 
artists that we are excited to support <laughs> for us to put on our playlist before the show lead up. So definitely go check out crooked.com slash events and let us know on Twitter what music we should be playing on our playlist. That is one of the things I'm most excited for in 2019. There are a lot of things coming up, but I wonder what y'all are excited for next year. So I'm excited about taking a little more time to explore and reflect intentionally as and not just sort of like as a byproduct of me being in other places. Uh, I went to Paris for for New Year's and that was really incredible because it was one of the first times ever that I've ever like just been somewhere and didn't have a meeting or like didn't give a talk. I just was with friends and like we saw the Basquiat exhibit and everybody who's in our group was able to like deconstruct and help us think deeper about it. And like, that was brilliant. And I want to do that a little more intentionally in 2019. So I'm excited. I'm like looking forward to building that into the way I move about the world. I mean, to be clear, I'm very excited about the podcast tour, but I am also getting married this year, which I'm incredibly excited about hey. Um, hey. because <laughs> Reggie is just so incredible, and it's interesting, Dory, because my word of the year is surrender. I don't do resolutions, but um, both in my faith and just in my broader kind of purpose in the world, I want to make sure that I am fully surrendered to it and not just kind of trying to dictate my own agenda for my own satisfaction or glory. So um, I'm excited to to move in different ways and to be led in different ways this year and also to have a very fun party with my favorite person in the world. <laughs> I'm excited. And I think that this was alluded to in, in what you were bringing up, but like thinking differently about the way that we conceive of productivity and like what is a productive use of our time. I think for so much of my life, it, I was just like, go, 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 grind, 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 work, work, work. And like, you know, my son is is 19 months old now. And, you know, this whole year and a half has been a process of learning to reevaluate my priorities, how I spend my time, and just being more generous with myself, being more forgiving of myself, and not being so caught up in the way that capitalism makes us feel as if we have to be producing or working in, in like a very narrow sense all of the time. And so this year, I'm trying to be more intentional about being fully present and being a proactive partner and co-parent and not feeling like I have to be working all the time and that time not spent working is not time wasted. And so I'm trying to um, live into that this coming year. I mean, I'm excited about representation, uh, like seeing real representation in Congress for the first time uh, in my lifetime. I mean, this is the first week in which we've had millennials of color represented in Congress ever, right? Like that pew, is pew, pew. huge. Woo -woo. And not coincidentally, it's also a week that has been characterized by bold policy proposals, things that are grounded in research and science, which is the first time I've heard that Can't coming that. from the government in a while. <laughs> so talk about those empirics. Yeah. Empirical evidence. Yeah, we've got data, we've got science, like things that actually can work <laughs> to address the problems wow. that we're facing. Like, that's good. I'm excited about all of that. I, I actually didn't anticipate how quickly that shift would occur. And, and yet, you know, we're in a, a completely different sort of political conversation now than we were just a couple of weeks ago. And I think that that type of change is refreshing. And I'm looking forward to this year being a year of accountability and a year of proposing real bold solutions to address issues uh, and a year of, you know, understanding that, you know, this is the first step in, of many uh, to, you know, creating the type of world that we want to live in. But I'm glad for the changes that have been made already. Uh, just in the past you know, couple of months since the election, and I'm looking forward to more.
And on that note, for my news, I wanted to talk about uh, something that happened on 60 Minutes this past Sunday, and that's uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the newly elected uh, congresswoman from New York. She talked about a 60 to 70 percent marginal tax rate for those making more than $10 million a year in order to pay for the Green New Deal. And unsurprisingly, this led to a lot of outrage from people on the right. And if we're being honest, it also led to some skepticism from people who, who might self-identify as liberals or Democrats, because devoid of context and, and a sense of history around what our tax rate is, it can, you know, if you say 70, 80 percent tax rate, for some people that sounds unreasonable or outlandish. But the thing is that it's it's neither unreasonable nor outlandish. So some of the world's top economists have argued that the ideal tax rate for the wealthiest Americans should be at least 73%. And this is by no means also historically unprecedented. Under Eisenhower, top earners paid a 91% marginal tax rate. Another important po point here, and this is really important, and I think where a lot of the conflation and, and misunderstanding happens, is that this is not a flat tax rate. Uh, it's a marginal tax, meaning that if you make $10.5 million, you are not being taxed on... 70% of the entirety of that $10.5 million, you are only being taxed on that $0.5 million. And so this is a huge difference that the GOP is purposefully trying to obfuscate so as to confuse voters and make them feel as if you're ta getting taxed on 70% of all of your income. Uh, just to build on some of the research that uh, has been cited to support Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez's proposal, you know, this, if we impose a 70% uh, marginal uh, tax rate on folks making uh, over $10 million a year, there are about 16,000 households in the U.S. that would be affected by that. Only 16,000 households in a country of 150 million households that would be affected. So the first thing is we're seeing Republicans sort of uh, trying to spin this in saying that, you know, Democrats are going to raise taxes on everyone. Uh but really, Democrats are going to raise taxes on uh, people who are making a whole lot of money that aren't contributing a whole lot uh, of taxes, right? And so in this particular proposal, it's 16,000 households, and that would raise at that 70% rate uh, about $106 billion a year. That is a lot of money, $106 billion a year. To put that in context, you know, we think about things like the deficit, right? So Republicans like to talk about the deficit being a big issue and increasing. Well, the deficit has increased pretty dramatically under Trump. It increased 17% last year alone. So now it's at $779 billion. So every year, the U.S. government spends $779 billion more than it makes in revenue. This is asking the richest people in the country to contribute $100 billion of that. And even so, they are saying that this is some massive burden that will somehow affect their incentive to work more. Uh, and as we know, of course, uh, they would still be making $3 million on every $10 million earned, uh, even past that $10 million point at the 70% rate. But again, because we can look at the data, because we can look at the facts, because we can understand exactly how this would impact people, uh, in part because it's an actual policy with actual uh, specifics around how it would impact people, uh, that allows us to be more informed in this conversation. And I'm hopeful that more people will learn about this, uh, the impact it could have uh, in being reinvested in communities, uh, and that this will get more support like it had been in place for decades previously, as you mentioned, Clint.
You know, Sam, this piece that you said about Republicans using this idea to scare people who will literally never be affected by it is so critically important. We have to be reminded of how these tax cuts for the wealthy have been intentionally marketed to people who will never make more than $10 million a year, who can never even probably imagine making more than $10 million a year, and yet they are sold on the idea that this tax cut um, will help you because those top earners will be the job creators that help you and your family. And we have to remember that, as Clint said, this era of giving uh, large tax cuts to the wealthy, of financial deregulation and the deregulation of Wall Street, and in general of greater and greater wealth stratification is new, is relatively new. That era is not something that has happened throughout the history of this country. It has happened in the last couple of generations. What I'm struck by with this is thinking about Ocasio-Cortez. I remember when I interviewed her for the pod and, uh, and, and people saw her rise as like a symbolic rise and that, and that she represented a new generation of people in Congress and people are really excited about the symbolism. You know, when I think about the Democrats now controlling the House, it is important that people symbolically lead. It's important that people definitely press Trump. It's also important, though, that the Democrats put forth a vision and a plan for the future. That their work isn't just about rejecting Trump, but it's about mapping out a place that like includes the people in the party. And that's actually what Ocasio-Cortez, I think, represents more than anybody, because she actually does that right now. That like, she just got elected. You know, this is like day seven, right? And already we see an aggressive plan around like the Green New Deal and how to fund it. And like, She's not minting words and it's research based and it's like something she can defend and something other people can defend. And I, it's that energy that'll rebuild both the Democratic Party and any other party people want to create. Like you should be able to see your life in the party. And like, I think it's a testament to like what people are hungry for, which is not only like, do we need to fight Trump? We do. And I'm interested to see how Pelosi and Maxine Waters, because like somebody has to hold him accountable. At the same time, when we hopefully get power in 2020, we should have a set of plans ready to implement. And she reminds me of someone who is ready to do that work. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? 
Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Pot Save America is brought to you by Helix. If you're looking for better sleep, you need to upgrade your mattress with Helix. The Helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses, including the award-winning Lux Collection, the newly released and high-end Helix Elite Collection, hmm. a mattress designed for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids, which Charlie has. Charlie has a Helix mattress now, just for kids, in his uh, race car bed. Very nice. excited, very happy about it. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes, and uh, it ships straight to your door free of charge. They even offer a 100-night trial and a 10- to 15-year warranty to try out your new Helix mattress. If you're a side sleeper, you can choose a model with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief. There are also models with more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions. Plus, check out enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating while you sleep. It's no wonder Helix has over 12,000 five-star reviews. And you, you've loved your Helix mattress. I love I got a Don Lux. There you go. And there it's you go. great. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash crooked. That's helixsleep.com slash crooked. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. My news actually has to do with a study and a report that the Washington Post put out right before the holiday about just how many kids were put into situations of lockdown in their schools in 2018. So 4.1 million kids went on lockdown in 2018 while they were in school. Now, lockdown is widely regarded as the safest response to a threat being called into a school, to imminent danger, to the threat of a shooter either inside of the school or directly adjacent to a school. The thing about that 4.1 million number, though, is that it's likely more because there are a number of school districts who actually don't track how many lockdowns occur per school year. A lot of them are urban school districts that serve a number of students of color, which means that those lockdowns don't make the news. So it is likely far more than 4.1 million students. The most important conversation to have about this, though, is how it affects young people. It certainly causes feelings of overwhelm, chaos, uh, lack of understanding. There are students who have wept all the way through these lockdowns. There are students who have soiled themselves. Imagine being a child and literally texting your family member a will for what to do with your bicycle or your PlayStation if you die. Imagine being a parent and suddenly getting a text message asking for help or saying, I love you in the middle of the school day when your child should be concentrating on their work. I cannot imagine being a parent in that situation. Of course, schools are stuck in the situation where they have to take threats and shooting and other uh, imminent danger very seriously for the safety of students. Uh, And so all of this creates a perfect storm of danger and long-term consequences for children, and that's exactly what experts predict. They predict a meaningful percentage of students will suffer from those long-term consequences, such as a decline in their academics, an increase in depression and anxiety, PTSD and substance abuse, 
So every day that goes by that we do not pass meaningful gun control, we see people like Jasmine Barnes, the seven-year-old who was shot and killed in the car with her mother and her sisters in Houston, becoming victim to this in very direct ways. But we also see in some more indirect or perhaps unexpected ways, um, children falling victim to this culture of immense danger every single day that we don't take care of this. Brittany, this article is wild. 4.1 million kids. Now, in the U.S., there are about 50 million children uh, of school age. And 4.1 million in one year experiencing a lockdown is an extreme number compared to that. Let's say you're in school from kindergarten through 12th grade, 13 years, and each year you have about an 8% chance of experiencing a lockdown. That means a huge proportion of kids are going to experience this while they're in school. So, you know, this is a a, a huge crisis. Uh, I'm hopeful that now that, again, Democrats are in Congress, we'll see some real solutions to address gun violence. I know universal background checks has been proposed as sort of the first of hopefully many of those solutions uh, that will be passed, at least in the House. Imagining that this is actually... Uh, concentrated in particular areas, particular communities, um, where kids may be experiencing multiple lockdowns a year. Uh, And so, you know, as further reporting uh, develops on this, I'm interested to see sort of where are those concentrations, where your risk of experiencing a lockdown or experiencing a school shooting is the highest, uh, and where can we invest resources, invest policy solutions and gun control measures to address that and alleviate this for kids because no child should have to experience this. This article in the Washington Post was incredibly difficult to read and and brought me back to uh, my own time in the classroom. You know, I taught high school English and was doing so in a, in the midst of a time when school shootings were becoming more frequent. And the idea that someone, you know, doesn't know the difference between an active shooting situation and what's a drill and, and that same rush of fear washes over someone. And, and I think it's also important to acknowledge the tens of thousands of, of teachers and how this impacts them, right? And And I mean, I can't even think of what the teachers who are in schools where actual shootings have happened, the sort of trauma that they're carrying with themselves, both in the classroom and outside of it. So uh, this this impacts millions and millions and millions of teachers and students and staff uh, in ways that are important to bring to light in the way that this article does. Yeah, I think that one of the things that the article tries to be mindful of and that I think all of us as educators are mindful of is that there is a responsibility for schools when they learn of a threat to do something. And like that is sort of a, it's like that hard tension, you know, when there's like a Snapchat threat that somebody's going to shoot up the school or there's somebody causing a bomb threat. It's like you can't, ignoring it doesn't seem like the right option. And the lockdowns uh, do so much to the way kids interact for the whole day. I mean, like any of us that have been in schools, you know that you do a lockdown at 10 a.m., like you won't actually get the school back for another hour, two hours at best, right? That that actually, just the process of it, just like fire drills are really hard. Uh, What I'm mindful of is sort of what Clint talked about is like the lockdowns not only impact the students, but they impact the teachers and staff and also families. You know, you talk to the parents of first graders and second graders who have been in lockdown situations and thought they were going to die, even though they don't really know what death is. Like their conception of death is often from either like visiting, like going to a funeral of a loved one or like something on TV when they saw people die. Is that like they go home and like we actually haven't done enough work to prepare parents and family members to be able to talk through these situations with young people so that they like can process it in a way that's healthy and 
and doesn't create fear that just fuels other fear. And like we often talk about in the work of organizing and certainly the work of classrooms that young people often have the experiences and not the language and we shouldn't penalize them for not having the language. And like part of our work is to actually build the language uh, with students and their families around these things that they experience. And uh, that's what I hope that we start to do as these conversations about what does it mean to be safe in schools the last thing I'll say is that there, there are a number of schools now that just have fundamentally changed the way that the building becomes a site of community. So a lot of schools were like non staff can they cannot enter the building after a certain time in the morning or they can't enter the building at all or like and those things make a lot of sense from a safety perspective. They also change the fabric of like what schools feel like. So I so I don't have an answer and I know principals and teachers who are on both sides of these things. Uh, but I wanted to bring that up. That I do think that we could help equip families uh, to, to talk about safety and certainly to talk about lockdowns and the experience much more than we currently do. So my news is good news, and that is that if you are listening to this on Tuesday, the day that this episode comes out, uh, today is the first day officially where people in Florida with past felony convictions can start registering to vote. This is following Amendment 4, which we've talked about a bunch in the past, um, but it is interesting how we got to this point. Republicans were essentially trying to say that uh, folks would have to wait until the legislature convened in March and passed some sort of law to implement this before we would know who could effectively register to vote and who would still be ineligible or have to go through some process. Well, that, it turns out, does not appear to be happening. County election supervisors, according to the Tampa Bay Times, who interviewed a number of them, uh, have all said that they will uh, allow folks to start registering starting January 8th on Tuesday. Uh, and we'll uh, consider that if you are registering, uh, that you should have your rights restored as long as you have completed the terms of your sentence. Uh, so if you know somebody in Florida, if you are living in Florida and are directly impacted, uh, now is the time to uh, let them know that they can register to vote. Uh, there are a couple of sort of gray areas still. Uh, so there's a gray area around what it means to have completed all the terms of your sentence. Uh, so for example, if you still owe restitution and you know court costs and fees, uh, that is sort of a, an area where uh, there's not clear guidance in terms of you know what will happen. So uh, it's not clear how many people in total will be affected by that. It may be a large proportion or, or not. I'm interested to see some data on that. Um, but it, unless you ha are being convicted of murder or felony sex offenses, and unless you owe court costs starting January 8th, you now are eligible to vote. At least a million people, maybe as many as 1.4, 1.6 million people will be eligible. Uh, and this is, again, uh, a direct result of the efforts from organizers, the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, uh, and so many others uh, to get this amendment passed. Uh, and I'm hopeful that you know, now that folks can start registering, we will see uh, a large uptick in expanding the electorate, uh, getting people involved in the process who've been impacted by the criminal justice system, and hopefully shifting the politics of that state uh, to respond to this new constituency. Yeah, Sam, I just wanted to build on your last point about the folks who led this fight. And so just wanted to send a quick shout out to, to Desmond Mead, who's the leader of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, uh, and all of the returning citizens and formerly incarcerated folks who led this fight. Uh, and whether it's Desmond in Florida or Abdullah Latif or John Pace in Pennsylvania, who are doing essential work around juvenile life without parole, or if it's Norris Henderson in Louisiana, who led a coalition of organizations in the fight against non-unanimous juries, it's a profound statement about what happens when we allow people who are directly impacted by a system not only to, to have their voices heard, but to be leaders in the fight. This would be impossible without the leadership of those folks. And I think that this is an important political lesson, an important 
moral lesson for us. It's not good enough just to give someone a, a seat at the table for the sake of doing so. People who are directly impacted by these systems really have a lot of political know-how, political power to lead the fight to political victories. And so I hope we keep that in mind moving forward. And it's a model that should be replicated. Florida and places like Virginia are just the tip of the iceberg. In Maine and Vermont, felons never lose the right to vote, even while they're incarcerated. But in 14 states and the District of Columbia, um, incarcerated people lose their voting rights while they're incarcerated, um, and they receive automatic restoration upon release. In 22 other states, um, people will lose their voting rights while they're incarcerated and typically while they're on parole and probation. And then in 12 other states, there are folks who lose their rights indefinitely for certain crimes that actually require a governor's pardon in order for those voting rights to be restored. So the work is not over. And what it is up to each and every one of us to do is look at the model set forth by the folks in Florida and make sure that it's happening in our own state. I think this is a reminder, too, that like the goal isn't just to win. The goal is to protect the win. And the win was like getting Amendment 4 passed and da -da -da, protecting it is making sure that people actually get registered to vote, that they can vote, that they like know their rights, that they are informed to make decisions, like all those things, that that's a part of the work. So we're proud to be a part of the coalition and proud of the coalition's work to not only get the petitions, to even get it on the ballot, to successfully pass it on the ballot, and now to continue organizing to make sure that people actually register and in the next election that they can vote, that it has the power to really change uh, what the electorate looks like in Florida. My news is from the Herald Tribune, and it is also about Florida's broken sentencing system. So Florida is one of the places that has a point system for uh, to calculate sentences. And the reason they transitioned to a point system was to sort of try and weed out the variability in people's sentences. This idea that like if there's a point system, we can sort of say that the people in one part of Florida in Pensacola will see receive the same uh, sentence as somebody in Miami or Key West, uh, regardless of their gender, their wealth, or their race. But the Herald Tribune actually did an incredible review of tens of millions of records in two state databases, one that was compiled by the state's court clerks and the other that was through the Florida Department of Corrections. They reviewed over 85,000 additional criminal appeals and read through boxes of court documents and, and a host of other things, including talking to legal experts. And what they found is that the point system actually has done nothing to stop the disparities. If anything, it's a reminder of the proof that the disparities exist. So what they find is that when people get the same points in the formula, which means that they should ostensibly get the same sentence, that black people are sentenced far greater. That They spend more time behind bars and there actually is no consistency even with the point system. They also found that the war on drugs exacerbates the disparity. So police target black neighborhoods uh, using drugs as a way to funnel people into the system. And then once they're in court, judges are tougher on black drug defendants every step of the way that nearly half the counties in Florida since blacks convicted of felony drug possession to more than double the time of white people, even when their backgrounds are the same. Even on the court itself, that blacks are 16% of Florida's population and one third of the state's prison inmates, but fewer than 7% of sitting judges are black and less than half of them preside over serious felonies. And white judges in Florida sentence black defendants to 20% more time on average for third degree felonies. And black judges, the data shows, give more balanced punishments. And the last thing I'll say just from a data perspective is that across Florida, when a white and black defendant score the same points for an offense, judges give the black defendant a longer prison stay in 60% of felony cases. 
For the most serious first-degree crimes, judges sentence blacks to 68% more time than whites with identical points. For burglary, it's 45% more, and for battery, it's 30% more. So I just brought that up because, you know, people talk about moving to risk assessments. They talk about moving to point-based systems as a way to, to eradicate the injustice and to, like, streamline and to make sure there's consistency. The Florida data set shows that in the absence of any accountability for judges, the points actually don't necessarily on their own actually do anything. And in Florida, there's almost no accountability for judges. So when the newspaper reached out to judges, they were just like, oh, we aren't we aren't racist. This is what people deserve, even though the data shows a deep disparity. So it's a I think the data set is is a word of caution and I am interested in what you guys think about it. Yeah, I think there's two separate issues here. I think the first is the point system itself and how that's constructed. Uh, you know, in, in many cases and, and we've talked about this in the past, you know, there will be systems that are constructed in ways that uh, build bias into the the calculation. Uh, so for example, if your prior arrest record is part of the calculation of points, but you live in a community where you're much more likely to be arrested, let's say for marijuana possession, uh, despite you know being no more likely to use marijuana, then you're going to have a higher number of points despite not actually being uh, any more likely to engage in uh, the underlying activity. Uh, so, so that's the first thing is that there's a layer of bias often built into these point systems that's important to to call out and to address. Uh, but then the second thing that that your article uh, calls to attention is the fact that even when you have a point system that assigns the same number of points between black and white defendants, um, even if that system was equitable and did everything right and the points reflected some underlying metric of, I don't know, dangerousness or criminality, uh, that that would actually not lead to equitable outcomes because the judges and other system actors who are interpreting that point system uh, will still make decisions in biased ways. Uh, and so, you know, that is something that also needs to be addressed. Uh, and, and it opens up, you know, this, this massive data collection project uh, that the journalists engaged in opens up the possibility for thinking about accountability uh, among judges in a different way. I mean, usually when we go to vote, there are some judges on the ballot, depending on where you live. Um, you may be electing your judges. Uh, and there's like no data. There's no nothing that there's, there's nothing you can go to uh, currently in so many jurisdictions to actually evaluate the quality of the judges themselves uh, to inform you on how you should vote. Uh, and so all of those things should be information that people have access to when they go to the, the ballot box. I'm thinking about how some of the studies that we brought up have been in the realm of behavioral economics and this idea that when you make someone aware of a practice or a phenomenon or, or their participation in a phenomenon, that it then shapes their future behavior in that. So I'm wondering to to this point, because all of this data is really uh, so important and so rich, I'm wondering if there's any research out there about if a judge is presented with information and data that demonstrates the uh, the extent to which, you know, the the nation or their municipality or their specific court engage in discriminatory practices, if that then changes their behavior in the future. So point blank and the period, one always has to calculate for prejudice. Math, numbers, data, statistics are not free of bias. Why? Because algorithms are written and systems are created and perpetuated by people and people have bias. And to your point, Clint, that when we identify the bias rooted in the numbers, that we create solutions that actually not only hold people accountable, but have the power to change behavior and outcomes for real people. 
That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash Sirius XM. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. And now, my conversation with Tomi Adeyemi, the incredible author of the book, The Children of Blood and Bone. Tommy, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to talk. So I read The Children of Bun Bone before it came out. I tweeted about it. You know, so excited to talk to you. First question is, when did you decide you were going to be a writer? Was there like a moment that you were like, I am going to write a book? It's funny because we were even talking a little about this before. I started writing as soon as I could like string words together. Basically, it was always in me in a way that I wasn't even conscious of it. So I like had watched The Parent Trap with Lindsay Lohan. I was reading these books about these like 12 year old girls on a horse farm. I was watching this movie, this Bollywood movie called uh, Kabikushi Kabigam like every day. And I wanted all of those things. So in my head, I was like, oh, you can get all those things now if you write a story about it. And I did that when I was really young. Like, I don't know if it was like five or six or seven, but it just started. And I'd been doing that since I was a kid. So I've always been writing, but I never thought of myself as a writer. I never consciously said, oh, you're sitting down to write. It was like, this is just what you do. Um, And then after I graduated college, I had tried, you know, to work in the entertainment industry, and I think it was because I was scared to admit that I wanted to be a writer. So I was like, no, you don't want to be a writer. You just want to work with stories. So I sort of, like, kept taking, I guess, the winding road around actually going after it. And so the moment I decided, like, okay, you want to be a writer was um, after my first job. I was working in L.A., and I'd been working on a book for a few years and I started like every day after work I would stay at my desk for like two hours or three hours to avoid traffic and I would just keep working on this book and it was maybe after about six months of doing that when it stopped being two hours or three hours but I started leaving the office at like 10 and 11 and midnight I was like okay you don't want to do this just for fun you're definitely not doing this to avoid traffic Um, you do this because you're hoping that someone's going to read this and tell you that you can do this during the day too. So it was kind of like being unhappy at my first job and working so hard for a book that still went nowhere was the moment where I was like, okay, you actually want to do this, which means you have to stop lying to yourself and go for it. For the listeners that don't know anything about the book, how would you describe it? I'm trying not to describe it so I don't give it away because Uh, all of my descriptions are giveaways. 
Yeah, okay. Um, I describe uh, Children of Blood and Bone as Black Panther with magic. Okay. Um, so, you know, where Black Panther was sort of this futuristic, you know, sci-fi take on African culture, Children of Blood and Bone is this fantasy take. So we have these giant magical lions, and instead of futuristic technology, they're they're using this magic of, you know, West African deities and religion and mythologies. And so it's sort of just this celebration. I feel like it's the sister to Black Panther. And so that's why it's going to be really exciting to see it on the screen one day. I wanted to ask you, too, about your tweets on July 12th, 2018, uh, about the four officers showing up at your doorstep. Yeah. And and that, you know, I spend most of my time around policing and, like, yeah. mass incarceration, these issues. And one of the things that is always so interesting, you know, a third of all the people killed by a stranger in this country is actually killed by a police officer. Mm-hmm. That the issue is, like, much bigger than people think. And yeah. there's so many people who, who care about it, who understand it. And then all of a sudden, it's like literally on their doorstep and and it becomes this moment where you're like, okay, this is like a moment, you know? Yeah. How has that impacted or influenced the way you think about the world, the work in general, and your work as a writer? Yeah, so... Like, can you maybe explain what happened for people? I don't want to... Yeah. I don't, know. I don't want to give away too many of the details just because of the nature of the matter. Um, but yeah, four officers showed up at my door. Um, they wanted to talk to someone who was inside my house. Obviously, being a black person in America, you know, an armed officer shows up at your door. You're, you know that this could be the end. You know, right. you know, you don't, you might not have the details. It's just you've seen this story. You see it every day. Right. And so even though they weren't uh, trying to talk to me, I was still very you know, I was scared. I was scared and I was alarmed. And then I was also concerned about sort of the the fact that they wouldn't answer my questions about why they were there. They wouldn't show a warrant. They wouldn't show this. So it was just a very aggressive encounter. And then there was a point, and you even talk about this in your book, you know, there's a point where you're like, am I going to die? And then eventually you get to a point where you're like, okay, I don't believe that I'm going to get shot right now. So I don't think I'm going to die. For me, the body was still coming down from that fear. But then it was also like, okay, you're not going to die. Everything's fine. But OK, let's talk about this, you know, because you like we have so many of these conversations. Like you say, we think about these things. We talk about these things. We write essays about these things. But it's like, OK, I'm a black person here, like white officers. We've had a negative experience, but like maybe this is an opportunity to actually talk about it. And maybe I can explain to them why using the language that they used and making the threats that they made you know, are very problematic in today's climate and are not going to help them get answers they might need or information they might need. So I sort of shifted to try and do that in the situation. And it was when that effort was rebuffed and turned down and, you know, you hear a statement like, I don't see color. That's not what this is. And you're like, wait, what? You know, like, (laughs) I've never heard that in my real life. (laughs) You know, it's something that's said a lot. But like hearing that from a cop and when I'm trying to explain to them why threats that they made are very terrifying in the landscape of police brutality. It was, I just felt so ignored, but it wasn't really feeling ignored. It was just sort of my heart breaking because in my head, you think so many of these problems are just because we're not communicating. And so when you have an opportunity to communicate and that's actively shut down, you're like, oh, it's not because we're not communicating. It's because people don't want to change. People don't want to listen. People don't care. So that was sort of the situation that happened. And, you know, I was really shaken up by it for, I don't know, about 45 minutes. Like I remember like sobbing on the bathroom floor and I had to leave for a trip really soon. And I realized what made me most upset by it and what makes me most upset in general 
is just when I feel powerless <laughs> or when I feel like I don't have a voice. And I realize, okay, these officers didn't listen to me, but I can talk about this encounter. And I can't necessarily make people listen, you know? <laughs> you can't make anyone listen, but it's like I can put it out there. And I put the story out there. You know, people are like, release the video. You should sue and you should do all this. And it's like, no, that's that's literally not my intent. I'm putting the, I put the story out there to remind myself that just because four people don't listen to you doesn't mean four million people won't. You know, I wasn't I didn't I I didn't feel the need to give interviews or do this because I'm like, this is what my entire book is about. So I'm not surprised that this happened to me. Like I said, this is an act of fear that I live with every single day. But I felt the need to do it just to remind myself like no one can silence you. And then the other part of it is, like you say, we talk about these things and people care about these things. But I think a lot of people who aren't black or who don't come from a marginalized background think, yeah, but that'll never happen to you. Right. You know, you're my favorite author. That's never going to happen to you. You were on Jimmy Fallon. That's never going to happen. You had to a you. number one, number one bestseller book. Exactly. You know, you're like you're that's that. You know, it's you. You're you. And I'm like, okay. I think Beyonce is safe. I think Oprah is safe. <laughs> I think Michelle Obama is safe. Other than that, right. <laughs> you know, it's it's open season. So it was sort of, I knew that a lot of people who followed me and looked up to me and felt a tie to me needed to see this to realize that like. These aren't just stories. These aren't random people. These, this is what's happening in their backyard. This is happening to their neighbors. This is happening to their friends. And that's really what the book is about, putting a human face to all of these things that are happening. Because I think it's so easy to dehumanize it or it's so easy to be like, that's awful, but that would never happen here. And the whole point is, no, it it happens here. It happens everywhere. It's It's constant and you have to open your eyes to it and then you have to actively stand up and fight against it. How has it been to to have young people like live with your text? You know, you like wrote this thing, put out in the yeah. world and now it's like a thing and I used to teach sixth graders and you know, there's like a honesty and sort of purity in the way the young people show up. I'd love to yeah. know how you've experienced that like with your a story you made. You talk a lot about hope And for me, I was like, okay, where does my hope come from? Or how do I stay hopeful? And it's always the kids. It is always the kids because it's like you say, they bring such a purity. There's such heart um, behind what they do. I did a school visit this week, and I never know how school visit's going to go, you know, because I don't expect anyone to know about me or be a fan of the book or anything. So I'm always like, okay, get in there, get your war paint on, like, you know, don't let them smell your fear. Get ready, get ready. so, yeah, I go there, I'm ready to, like, all right, let's try and do this. Let's try and make a good experience. And I see all these kids and they're like freaking out and they have all these T-shirts. And, you know, like I'd like to go in schools and talk to kids about following their dreams and, you know, just all the questions they had. And it was just like every time I see a kid or I get to talk to a kid or interact with them, you know, I just see this. I see love and I see hope and I see this heart. And I'm just like, okay, this, you know, this is what I wish was the story every day on the news, you know, because if you see that and you're surrounded by that and you get to interact with that and even like help and encourage that, then I don't want to say it's easy, but it's a lot easier to feel hopeful about our world and the state of the world, especially when we look at who's going to inherit this world and the amazing work they're already doing. 
One of the things that I, um, that's sort of hard and you have it differently because you have two more books. So you, anything you like forgot to put in book one, you're like, I, I want to believe you can like fix it in the next ones. Yeah. When I think about even the way I wrote about justice in the book, one of the things I'm mindful of now is like the difference between justice and accountability, right? That like accountability is what happens after the trauma. Justice is the fact that there should be no trauma in the first place. Mm. Most of what we talk about is actually accountability, which is cool. Accountability is great. But even in the world you create, right, it's like, are there any other ways that you think about, like, the power of words in this larger landscape, especially in a moment where people feel like the world's falling apart? Yeah, and that was something that I felt when I first was, like, working in Hollywood after college. I Something I heard a lot is, like, you know, it's not brain surgery. You know, we're not saving. You know, you know there was always this sort of, like... Yeah, we're we're just we're just doing this. We're just having fun. It's not important work. And I feel like a lot of writers and creators and storytellers tell themselves, you know, and you're like, "Oh, I'm just writing Naruto fan fiction. This is the most useless thing I could ever do <laughs> with my time." And something I've realized through this process is it's actually the opposite. You know, stories tell our stories. Stories in art and entertainment are like the most common ground we connect with as humans. The example I like to give, one of my friends asked me one day, she's like, what do you think the world would look like if Harry Potter had been black? I'm like, okay, if the boy who lived, if the boy the entire world was obsessed with and the boy on all these billboards and, you know, the boy and the crimes, like, I was like, if this boy was black, then does Kamir Rice get shot? You know, and I'm, I'm really, truly thinking about that because these, the stories we tell, the images we put out there, these things matter. They change the way we think about ourselves. They change the way we think about others. They change the way we see and perceive the world. And so for me, especially creating stories, I'm really mindful of that fact. But then when it comes down to a book and the book is all language, it's like I'm aggressive about that. So on one hand, I want it to sound good. On the other hand, it's like how can I teach them about this very important aspect of I think about life? On the other, you know, so it's like every sentence I'm trying to make it to like really heavy lifting for 10 completely different aspects and some of which are just pure to the nature of telling a story and then others of which are pure to like the nature of me knowing that one day a human is going to be reading the story and that so I want this to be a like a conversation with them in some way. Let's talk about magic. Yeah. I'd love to know how you think about the mixture of magic and blackness and, and, and like what that means to you as a yeah. black woman, as a as a writer, as a somebody where young people are consuming so much of this. And I say this because the book that changed my life as a kid was The Giver. Like, it fundamentally changed everything about the way I saw the world. Yeah. And it was like, you know, The Giver's not, I guess it's, ma- I mean, I guess The Giver is magic. But just seeing people exist with powers that, like, I'd never known before just, like, yeah. really shifted me. But they weren't people that looked like me. And yeah. I think about, like, what it means to have a book like this uh, in this moment for kids. So, yeah, big question. Uh yeah, I'd love to hear. It's funny, too, because we both loved Storm growing up. Yes. <laughs> and, like, I was obsessed with Storm. And obviously I didn't realize it at the time, consciously, especially when you're young. But part of it is because it's this magical being who looks like us. You know, maybe she has white hair. Maybe she has, like, I think she has blue eyes or white eyes or something. Um, but it's like, okay, but she has some nice dark brown skin. And so suddenly you're like, I can be magical too. And I think that's a big part of the book. Like the book in itself is trying to do two completely opposite things. I wanted us to have way more than Storm to look to. You know, I wanted us to have all these characters 
that are magical and powerful and inspirational. You know, when I was conceiving this story and I was writing the story, it was two years before Black Panther came out. So I was still living in a world where we had never, ever had anything like that, never had anything that was fully ours and fully us in our, like, black magnificence and just being celebrated and just just real stories, just real arcs, things where we weren't turned into animals halfway through, like, just, <laughs> just an adventure. And so... That's real. You, yeah, and now that we have Black Panther, it's like it. this feels like a way to continue that work because especially for the kids of color it's like I I wrote a book that little Tommy needed because like I said I've been writing since I was really little and I wrote myself into my very first story because I really wanted a twin and I really wanted a horse and I really wanted to wear a sari so even though the character started out being named Marilyn and Carolyn by the middle it's just Tommy and Tommy and it's like Tommy galloped on this black stallion and she did this and she sang the song from Kabi Kushi Kabi Gum and she saved our parents you know, like it was just this big fantasy. But then in every story I find from that like age onward till 18, when I realized I was doing this, all of my characters were white or they were biracial. And so I was still writing these fantasies and adventures I wanted to have. But part of the fantasy was being white. Mm. You know, part of the fantasy was having light brown skin and hazel eyes and curly hair. And like I didn't realize I was doing that until I really sat back and looked. And the other thing is nobody else read my stories. Nobody read anything I wrote, like anything creatively I wrote that wasn't a part of school until maybe I was 20 or 21. Mm. So these were things I was doing alone in my room for a decade. And it's because I'd internalized that I couldn't be in my imagination, that black people couldn't have magic, they couldn't have adventures, they couldn't fall in love. You know, They're, and it's it's sad to me to think I spent so much time doing that. So part, a, well, a big part of writing this entire trilogy is like to save the little Tommy and to mm. save all the little Tommies that are out there right now. Because I know if I had read Children of Blood and Bone, when I was a kid, I wouldn't have erased myself for 10 years. And last question is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stayed with you? Yeah, it's hard because I have all these sources of inspiration and like the things that fill me. I can't pinpoint one specifically over the year. I think what I can bring to the front of mind is one that's helping me right now. There's this uh, motivational speaker named Angela Davis, and she she has this speech. She, it was like a TEDx talk, and it's called Grace for Your Race. Mm. And she was, you know, she ran track professionally, so the metaphor, you know, has a a specific meaning for her. But what she talks about is that, you know, she's like, you were put on this earth for a purpose. You were put on this earth to run that race. And God has given you every tool in the book to run that race. So there's no obstacle you can't overcome. There's no challenge you can't, like, or hurdle you can't jump over. So that that is really, really sticking with me. And that, like, every obstacle, every quote-unquote loss is really just a lesson in disguise. It's really just something building you um, to continue doing what you were meant to do. So that's really like mentally tattooed on my hand right now. Well, Tommy, I consider you a friend of the pod. Can't wait to have you back. Yay! Frantically waiting for book two. Can't wait to see the movie. When when is the movie supposed to come out? I am hoping 2020 or 2021. Got it. Boom. Well, thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.
Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.